Record Collections and Recollections. Out of the Box, with Mia Hull on FBI Radio. Hey, thanks for tuning in to FBI Radio 94.5. This is Out of the Box. It's the place where every Thursday from midday to one, I sit down with one person to roll through their record collection and their stories and look at the way those two things interact. Right now, I'm broadcasting from land belonging to the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and my guest is joining me remotely from Wadi Wadi country. Each of us are coming to you from unceded Aboriginal land, so I want to take this moment to pay my respects to Gadigal and Wadi Wadi elders past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to any First Nations person listening right now. Stay on Out of the Box, we're celebrating song and stories and art, which is something that Aboriginal people have done on this land since the beginning of time. Today's guest has actually made a couple of cameos on this show before, both as a character in someone else's stories and as the singer of a track chosen by a previous guest. Her name is Helen Rose. She's a performance artist, lead singer of Soul Crime and co-producer of Giddo's Productions. We paid a little bit of lip service to Helen last year when we interviewed her husband and longtime collaborator, Dr. George Giddo's, but she has a whole practice outside of the work she does with George, and I'm so excited to explore that today. We're also going to explore the chronology of Helen's very big life and the songs that have soundtracked some of the special moments. Thank you so much for joining me, Helen. It's lovely to see you again. I'm just so excited to be part of this fantastic show, Mia. And how wonderful to kind of be in a radio partnership with my beautiful partner, George, as well. But he's not in the room, so it's all my voice now. (laughs) It's your time to shine. (laughs) (laughs) Helen, last time we spoke was August 2021. The US had withdrawn their troops from Afghanistan, the Afghan government had collapsed, and the Taliban took Kabul. When you answered my call, you said something like, oh, sorry, Mia, it's a bit frantic here. I've been saving lives all night. And then you left for Afghanistan shortly after that. I want to go back to that moment. Can you describe to me the situation you arrived to when you got to Jalalabad? When I arrived there, um, well, we arrived mainly like after that time that I spoke with you. We arrived in Peshawar. We, there is no way we had visas to uh, fly into Kabul. We had visas to go in if we wanted to um, through uh, Peshawar, to, which is only 30 minutes away from Jalalabad, to drive through. But there is no way that we could do that at that time. So uh, we were very worried about our people. Um, but of course, a lot of our Yellow House Jalalabad people managed to get over the border or were already in Peshawar. And so we set about setting up the, a, a Yellow House Jalalabad Peshawar in exile. And um, it was just incredible to have everyone there. Everyone was really worried, especially my Yellow House Jalalabad women's team. And I'd have phone calls, constant phone calls with them. And, but there was really nothing that anyone could do. But what we started to realise was that the big bloodbath that we'd all been terrified of happening just didn't happen. And so that has caused us all a huge relief. And mm. so the days kept going by and 
and and and you know people were in hiding so people have come out of hiding a little bit and and things are very different now and we're actually feeling that there is a lot of hope for Afghanistan but at the yellow house Jalalabad we had the protection of the Taliban well yeah let's let's get into that Helen because you have been mentioning the yellow house and part of it is you know training people in the arts for someone who's just tuning in and maybe not familiar with the yellow house Jalalabad, can you explain it to me? There, there are no art schools whatsoever in Afghanistan. So um, when we first arrived, uh, we were invited by actors that we'd met when we were making our Pashtun version of the Twilight series in uh, the tribal belt of Pakistan, which is a whole other amazing story. But we were invited um, to Afghanistan and... George just said, right, we're going. And I just thought, my God, are we actually going to go? And uh, George went first and um, I was back in Sydney and he, because he always goes first to scout things out to try and make them safer for me. But um, uh, so I just got a Skype call and he said, Helen, I've found a house. And I went, oh, great, because we were both sort of a bit semi-homeless. I had my HRSL in Surrey Hills, but we needed somewhere for both of us. And he said, it's in Jalalabad. And I went, okay. (laughs) And before I I knew it, I was there uh, setting up a house like, you know, something out of the wild west uh, in Jalalabad with an amazing group of actors who, it was extraordinary. My arrival, my first arrival to uh, Kabul airport was quite scary because I was on this plane and then you arrive and it's like it's very eastern block and I can see that the remnants of you know east Russia are still there in Kabul so we're all in these lines and I had a big computer with me because we needed it for editing and also you know our plan was to be using it for teaching and um and one of the guys tried to you know one of the guards since it was 3 a.m in the morning and he looked like something out of a you know, I don't know, a, a B-grade movie had big reflector glasses on and, and he was like, you know, give me this computer and I'll let you go through. And I, I just said, no, I'm not going to let you have this computer. I'm a school teacher and I'm going to, you know, have it for my students. So we had this battle at 3 a.m. in the morning and finally he let me go through with it. And I, I came out, you know, because you have to get this bus ride and it's really quite scary because there's these huge bomb walls and and everyone's kind of worried, you know, no one looks relaxed, you know, <laughs> like, so I'm pushing my bags and the trolley along and, and suddenly I just see a whole lot of people and of course they're all wearing little pill hats and long beards, so it's like meeting all the Osama Bin Ladens at once or something. And then, and then suddenly I just see these two guys who had like really big guys, tough looking guys wearing leather pants and leather jackets and like, but had flowers in their buttonholes and full face of makeup and carrying two large bunches of red roses. And I saw in, the, in between them a guy that looked like a Taliban. And, and of course, that was George with Amir Shah Talash on one side and Mashuk Shadab, two uh, famous Afghan movie stars there to greet me with these beautiful <laughs> roses. <laughs> Helen, I want to jump to another moment in Afghanistan that was arguably pretty scary. You're actually the singer of the next song you've picked on the show. Can you tell me the story behind it? What an amazing um, day. Well, I learned the song in Pashto 
from the musicians at the Yellow House, the, the Afghan musicians, and I wanted to interpret it into English. And everyone was just so excited that I'd learned Pashto. And because most people learn Farsi or Dari, because Pashto is really difficult, like, you know, Guta me parguta, ore me dar, sarga sara. You know, it's very difficult. And I learned this song, it's the song of the region. It's called Kamis uh, Tor, which is black dress or black shirt. And it's about the, the dye of the area, you know, they, they have like, res, it's about the rural resources, which is dyes. And I was invited on International Women's Day in 2017 by Anissa Imrani, who is the head of women's affairs in Jalalabad, to sing that song at the governor's palace. And it was really I was quite prepared and I was going to have uh, a tabla player a, a rabab player and a harmonium player accompany me and all of a sudden all of that was called off George wasn't allowed to come Wakar who is our stand-up right-hand man Wakar Alam he wasn't allowed to go who and um, I was contacted by Anissa and she said that the first lady Rulagani had been turned around uh, she would, and that she would love me to come. I couldn't bring any of my musicians or anyone. I was contacted because IS were on the edge of town and they had threatened to kill Rulagani, the first lady who was had her entourage turned around. She was on her way down to the governor's palace. And, um, and so, I, you know, Inissa said to me, please come, Helen, can you do this? And I, sa- I said to myself, well... All of my women from the Yellow House Jalalabad team are going to be there, so I'm going. So I, you know, again, the street was cordoned off. There's these, this time, Afghan soldiers, and they had a a car waiting out with bulletproof, you know, like a tank thing with a a machine gun on the turret. And I had to run out of the Yellow House in my burqa, jump into this car, wave goodbye to George and Makar, go on my own. They went down the, the, the opposite way of the traffic, sort of, dodging through all these amazing streets till suddenly we come up against these gigantic steel bomb walls and there's all these soldiers hanging out there and uh, and then I go in through the doors and it was like going into a magic world like a a different time zone into a beautiful uh, Afghan Sufi garden because they have the most exquisite rose gardens and so I could smell roses, I could see orange trees, I could see a beautiful long path leading up to a huge fountain. It's the world that should be there that isn't there because of the wars. And so I went in and I was ushered, went past these really tough um, security ladies to check me and they're, they're like tribal women, they've got all these amazing tattoos all over their faces. Anyway, the guy that was organising it, our beloved Z, who has since been killed, unfortunately, by a, by a suicide bomber, he organised the day and he came running up to me and saying, Helen, we don't know if you can do this song today. It might be too dangerous because the IS had been told, you know, put out word that they knew a foreign woman was coming to sing in public. I don't know how they found that out. And, uh, and so I said, look, whatever you want to do is fine. You know, I'm, it's just amazing to be here. Um, and then um, I suddenly got... Anissa came up to me and she said, Helen, please do this song. Please, please do it. So I thought, right, I'm going to do it. 
And then suddenly it was my turn and, and a, a little boy had come up earlier with a piece of paper and read out in, in English saying, Dear Miss Helen, can you please say something after you've sung the song? So I was like, oh God, what am I going to say? You know, be really <laughs> careful, you know, because it's a very mannered society. Burkas are really about not showing shape or anything. So I didn't have my burka on when I got up on stage, but I had this amazing big dress covered in mirrors and embroidered and everything. So I started, I just thought, okay, well, I'm going up to the stage and I, 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 once I got on the stage, there were guys on either, either end of the stage with AK-47s, just in case someone threw a grenade or some, something went crazy in the audience. I looked over and there were men on one side, which is amazing, and I could see Hakani was there, and huge amount of women. I'm talking about three to 5,000 people. And I sang the song and in English, or in Pashto first, and then in English... And at the end of the song, I, I, I thought, I want to show I'm brave, but I couldn't, you know, so I just sort of swished my skirts and held my head high. And, and then um, at the end of the song, I put my fist in the air and I said, I'm here today as an Australian woman to stand by the women of Jalalabad and the men who stand by them. And you could have heard a pin drop in that huge crowd. And I thought... Mm. Oh my God! What have I done? You know, like I just. But then I just got mobbed, like, but in a good way. The girls were just like screaming, had their hands in the air, going ah, you know, screaming, and they came running down to the mm. stage, and you know, I just felt like I'd entered a cloud of you know all these soft women's hands grabbing my hand, and and I just thought, my God, I've done something uh, powerful. And then I I made a little wow. video clip. I got Neha. My, my friend at the Yellow House to uh, make a video clip and we put that out during the time that the Taliban took back control and I just got so much uh, so many messages from everyone in Afghanistan thanking me for putting that up because it bridges the cultures you know yeah well I'll put a link to that video up on the programs page on fbiradio.com but what a beautiful image to to introduce this song Helen and we'll jump into it right now on Out of the Box on FBI Radio 94.5 it's Black Dress sung by my guest on the show today Helen Rose both in Pasho and English Black Dress, sung by Helen Rose, my guest on Out of the Box today. And we kicked off the show talking about Love City, also known as Jalalabad. And I want to talk about love now, an epic modern love story. Helen, how did you come to meet George Giddos? I first met him at the gunnery when I was squatting there. It was 1985, 86, something like that. And as I was saying earlier, he came down what we called the secret stairwell. And because we didn't know very many people of note, he was a person of note. He um, was brought down the secret stairwell and suddenly he's in the room and I'm meeting George Giddos. But I immediately knew he was a very cool person just because he had, you know, an aura of, of he just wasn't snobby or anything like that. And 
and you could see that he really loved art and admired what we were doing because we were doing battle with the local um, government, the New South Wales government, I think it was Griner who was in at the time, to keep the gunnery going because we were the biggest venue in Sydney at the time. And we just became friends. I was a lot, I'm a lot younger than George, not a lot, but about 15 years younger than George. And he was married and, you know, that was, I wasn't, I just thought, wow, this guy's really cool, yes. But I didn't, um, I didn't think anything of that, but we, we became friends and he supported us. And he supported a, a fantastic show that we did at Jan Taylor's gallery called The Gunnery Synthesis Show, where uh, he organised for a whole lot of artists from the gunnery to exhibit because those days were so tough. People didn't like art or artists <laughs> because, especially punk, because, you know, I just, remember, I just remember saying to a girlfriend, you know, like, do you remember when the freaky young people with piercings suddenly got a job at Boost Juice? And we were like, yes, that's when we knew that it was okay because if your hair was slightly odd, you could not get a job. You know, if you looked out of place or your clothes were slightly disheveled in any way, you could not get a job back in those days. So, And how did that, yeah, friendship with George turn into love? Ah, well, we just <laughs> stayed connected over the years. You know, I followed his career, he followed mine. And he just always appreciated my performance artwork. It was always controversial. And, of course, his work is pretty controversial as well and... and, and you know, I remember him saying to me once, Helen, um, you know, to, to make change in your own home turf is the toughest thing in many ways. Um, because I kept saying to him, I have, you know, I really want to branch out and do more. And he'd say, no, you know, what you're doing here is, is, is intense. You know, I did some really intense shows in the 90s. Um, and I had a whole lot of different venues and stuff. But I had this cool little venue in Surrey Hills called the Helen Rose Schausberger Laboratorium or the HRSL and uh, this was 2008 and he was single I was single but I didn't know that at the time and he just I just got this call out of the blue and he said hey Helen I've I've just come back from uh, Pakistan the tribal belt making making a film called the miscreants of Tallywood why don't you come over and see the rushes and I it was like three o'clock in the afternoon and I just, um, I just thought, oh, I'd made a noise then, I'll say it again. I, it was three o'clock in the afternoon and I was a bit tired. I was teaching at a school down the road in Surrey Hills, the Australian Institute of Music, which I loved. <laughs> and, oh, that's so cool. All the naughty kids went there, you know, that didn't fit into their regular school. So it was like, yes, <laughs> my buddies, they're fantastic. I'm still, still friends with lots of them. Anyway, I was a bit tired. I thought, should I go up there? He was just on Burke Street, I think, editing with um, the editor that he was working, Nick Myers at the time. And I thought, yeah, go on, go up there. So I went up there and because um, I was only down the road. And he opened the door. And in that moment, I just gasped. I just went, <gasps> and And I just... I just knew in that moment, it sounds so corny, that it was love at first sight. I mean, well, although I'd seen him many times, but it was just, it was very strange. And he had the same feeling. And then, of course, we're trying to ignore that feeling the whole time while I'm watching the rushes. And then, but then we just kind of just kept talking. And then we went to uh, a restaurant, <laughs> you know, like, okay, let's go and eat now. And then it was like, okay, well, I think I really have to go home now. And then he just goes, oh, well, I'll come back with you. I'll walk you home. And I'm like, okay. 
So suddenly we were listening to Highway to Hell and drinking like five vodkas and, um, and, and just having this great time. And then I, I kissed him. And I thought, my God. And I said, I'm, I said, oh, I'm sorry. But I, and I said, I think I wanted to do that for a long time. And he said, I think I wanted you to do that for a long time as well. And then it was like, okay, well, you better go now. Kind of thing. Like it was all of it. Uh, 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 uh. And, but we've been together every day ever since. And that's something that's seen you explore the planet, Helen. And I think there's something really special about the way that committing to George also means committing to his work. And as the co-producer of Giddo's Productions, you have been making art across the globe. I'm conscious that we only have an hour. Otherwise, I'd love to roll through all of the places that this has taken you. But instead, we're going to jump to a song. It's called The Gambler. Why did you pick this to play on Out of the Box today? Yeah, because it's about being... You know, it's another really old song and it's about a girl. It's about like all of these people that I know, like all the people in the films that we've made. They've, they've, let, they've jumped out of the box, you know. They've jumped out of the, <laughs> um, the, the square. They're, they're, they want to find something else in life. They want to go down that path less run down, less trod. And uh, they want to be free. And this song is um, all about uh, running. It's about this young woman who says, you know, mother, I'm going to go. I'm going to be free with the gambler. And I thought that's been my path. And that's always been George's. You know, I I had this. I just remember um, just I've had so many shit relationships, really. And they didn't work out. And I just one night I just said just before I got together with George, I just cried out to the great mother of the universe, I thought, said, mother of the universe, bring me a man, like, bring me a real man, you know, he's got to be smart, he's got to be tough, he's got to have adventure, he's got to have guts, and about, and, I, and it was funny, and I had this dream, and I sort of dreamt that I saw this guy with long hair, it wasn't George, but sitting around a campfire with these other strange foreign people, and I woke up and I, I didn't sort of think much more about it. Then it was only a few weeks later that I met the glorious, extraordinary George Giddos again. Call it manifestation, right? <laughs> well, let's jump into that track right now. A live performance by my guest on Out of the Box today, Helen Rose. You're listening to FBI Radio 94.5. This is The Gambler. Take it away, Helen. Gambler, 
gambler. Oh, mother, I'm gonna run for my life with the gambler. stones I just care about your dry lips eagle circle above our homes I just care about your dry lips Incredible! It was a live rendition of The Gambler performed by Helen Rose on FBI Radio 94.5. Helen is my guest on Out of the Box today, and a couple of times during the show, Helen, you've mentioned the gunnery, a squat where you lived and made art and were inspired by the punk movement and met your now husband, George Giddos. Can you tell me about what the gunnery is and how it came to be? Well, I was about 20... 21 years old and I'd left Victorian College of the Arts, the actors course, and I landed back in Sydney and squatting was very de rigueur, shall we say. Everyone was into it because there were big empty old buildings around and like Alpha House was um, a big, well it wasn't actually a squat but it, it was almost a squat because I think they were on a peppercorn rent. But Beta House next door to it on King Street, Newtown was a squat, an amazing squat and there were these really cool people in their artists. And I think they even had a piglet, which I thought was so wild to have a piglet in the middle of town. I hope it was okay. Maybe they had to eat it because they were starving. I don't know. But I don't <laughs> think so. But, you know, it was, it was just exciting. You know, we're all in our 20s. And, um, and then I had this wonderful friend who uh, is trans, was, well, is no longer a transgender friend who in those days it was really um, dangerous to be transgender it was dangerous to be gay it was dangerous to be an artist it was dangerous to be a musician 
Even the male musicians had a tough time because it was considered like almost a gay uh, preoccupation to be a musician. And, and certainly people in, our, in Australia didn't really understand rock and roll that well. And it was something that bad people did or something like that. So we kind of gradiated together. And there was this massive building in Woolloomooloo, which is now art space, and all those, those government offices, which we tried to stop happening. But anyway, at least it went to the arts. Um, and it was big and old and empty and it had this amazing quarter of a sphere room. And, of course, to young artists, it, 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 you know, me, me and Lexi, we, her name was Vigexis Gadney then. She'd always change her names. And we were in love. You know, she was the most beautiful. Um, we, we decided we were having a lesbian relationship, because, <laughs> and, which was utterly unthinkable and outrageous notion even in those days. And so we just said, right, we're, get, we're declaring social anarchy on this building. And we, we kind of shoved the communists out in our, in our high heels. And uh, we took over and declared it an art space. And then a whole lot of other people started coming in. And it was pretty wild. And, but we were the most popular venue, the busiest venue in Sydney from 1985 till 1991. And in fact, art space was kind of not so popular. It was out of the way. And they really wanted, they were, I, I like to think they were a little bit envious of our crowds because we were popping. You know, people were like, the level of wild was a hell of a lot higher than it is today. So, you know, uh, so, you know we'd have butchered babies were doing incredible dance pieces. And I had this group called um, Ah Hack. And we had, you know, we'd dress up in stilts. It was very performance art oriented. And we had um, Tester Quincy just kind of um, filled up the whole space with marigolds. I don't know where she got them from. And one stage downstairs in the carriageway, my brother Ian, he just filled up, he just cemented either end of the carriageway and filled it up with this purple water and, and put little lights and sparkling things in it. So it was just this creative explosion by all of these extraordinary artists. I mean, we had people like Billy Idol come down and hang out down there. Kurt Cobain and all of Mudhoney were down there at one stage. What? Yes, uh, because, you know, because <laughs> uh, the whole of the black eye, you know, Guy Madison used to hang out there, who's the bass player for Mudhoney, um, you know, because it wasn't really anywhere cool except for, um, except for the gunnery. The gunnery was the cool place. And because we had electricity, because we put the electricity on, and people lived there, Tex Perkins lived there, Kim Salmon, you know, like the, the Black Milk album was all shot in my dining room at the gunnery. So if you look at that fold-out, you'll see that it, that is my old dining room. I've still got my old table. You make a cameo in that, don't you? I, I, yeah, I've, I've featured a lot of songs, yeah. I was the backup vocalist yeah. for the Beast of Bourbon at that stage, yeah. What's the next song you've chosen, Helen? Nina Hagen, my darling Nina Hagen. In the middle of living at the gunnery, 1988, no, 1987, end of 87, Butchered Babies, we got a manager and we were um, in Europe and we were going to do a European tour, uh, us girls, 
and so that's I went to Amsterdam we unfortunately the group split up and I found myself all on my own in Berlin with a hundred marks in my pocket my electric guitar my suitcase it started snowing and my my the address I had was the the Rauchhaus which is an amazing squat in Berlin famous one George von Rauch and I arrived there and people were just so kind they were kind of like oh wow uh, this girl's got nowhere to stay. And so, a, a, you know, a girlfriend, she, all, she had a flat available and someone had a job. And, you know, it was just like one thing after another. But I just remember that time of being there and I lived in this place um, in, uh, in Moabit on Lübeckerstrasse, which I could see the, the Berlin Wall right there. And, um, and I just remember, you know, Nina Hagen was everywhere and she was just big and loud and she was... She had such a huge uh, impact on on the youth movement, and I, th- I really believe her her um, her power was uh, influential on the wall coming down. And also, my mother was an amateur opera singer. Her father was an opera singer. I kind of felt a kindred spirit, and uh, and I was there, the wall coming down. So Nina, God bless Nina Hagen. What a diva! What a diva! <laughs> This is TV Glotzer by Nina Hagen on FBI Radio 94.5. You're listening to Out of the Box with me, Mia Hull, and my guest, performance artist Helen Rose. It was Nina Hagen on FBI Radio 94.5. The song was called TV Glotzer. I'm very sorry if I've pronounced that wrong, but you are listening to Out of the Box. I'm Mia Hull. I am joined by Helen Rose today on the show. And we've spent a huge chunk of this show talking about the amazing chronology of your life and the places you've been and the art you've made. I want to wind back the clock to the very beginning, Helen. Where did you grow up? (laughs) Oh, little Helen Rose. Do you know I was born in St. Luke's Hospital in Rushcutters Bay, right near King's Cross. But it was very, you know, it was a, it was a women's hospital then. And then I, my parents, they were only 19. They were, they were childhood sweethearts. They moved to a little house in Heathcote. And then Fig Tree, Wollongong. So then I, they moved into a, a house um, in Wollongong when I was a teenager. Tell me about your family, Helen. What was it shaped like when you were living in Fig Tree? In Fig Tree, well, my, uh, sadly, my father was a bit of a wandering star, a bit of a, I reckon he should have been the front man for a rock and roll band. He was so, he was very cool, but a wild man. I love him, love him to bits. But it was a shame that they broke up, but, you know, married at 19, eh, eh, eh. you know, <laughs> A leads to B mm. leads to C. So, um, so, yeah, so all of a sudden for a while there, uh, we just had mum, and, and I love that. That was quite cool. And she was an amateur opera singer, and I used to go along to her operas and learn all of her songs very diligently. Or just, I just, they took to me, you know, I was, I've been, always been a musician. And, um, and it was fantastic. Um, but, you know, unfortunately, things unraveled, and, and I had a very, very tough time 
and I became like a teenage runaway. Not like when I was a teenage runaway because home was hell, basically because of a creepy stepfather. And, and all you know, the, the, the whole of Wollongong was a bit of a hellhole, really, in those days. I mean, the Lord Mayor of Wollongong, who was the oldest serving mayor in the country for 50 years, he was up on 29 counts of pedophilia. And, uh, and a, a young guy from Albion Park went into town and killed him. And, you know, so it was a tough time. So I ended up going into juvenile justice up in Keelong. And it was a really mm. wild time up there and I should never have been there. I went there basically because I was standing up against uh, child abuse. I, I refused mm. to buckle, thank the gods. And uh, lucky, you know, I didn't become incredibly dangerous person probably, but um, it, it had a huge effect on my life as I'm sure everybody knows um, who has had this experience. And I'm sending you so much love, you people out mm. there who've experienced this. Because um, just know that you can get by it and you can survive. And you can not only survive, you can, you can become the person who you were supposed to be, the person that you were born as. You don't have to be that person that was bashed and torn and twisted out of shape. You can get rid of all that. You really, really, really can. And I'm a living example of that. Well, yeah, I want to talk about that. You did just say the time you spent in a juvenile detention centre had a big impact on your life. Tell me about that impact. What, what does it do to a person? Makes you feel like an outsider. Makes you feel like you don't belong. Makes you feel like a freak. It makes you angry. It makes you feel uh, anxious in society. You know, I, I felt a lot of anxiety, like I was branded. You know, I love that song by Rose Tattoo. I mean, there are so many songs that I could have played on this show. Uh, but, you know, because you are, you're branded and it's wrong. You know, like I love that ACDC song, Cold Hearted Man. You know, like, you know, you, you, you grow up in, in that environment without love and it, it, and it can either crush you or it can turn you into a monster. And I kind of, I managed to find my way through that and I did that through performance art and my artwork. And even today, you know, um, when I did the Surf Shack show in the Burka, you know, it's actually, t- I still, I'm st- really good friends with my counsellor. She's amazing. <laughs> she's, she's so cool. <laughs> she advises the government and we talk about cognitive behavioural therapy and inner child healing and all of that fascinating stuff, amazing stuff. Anyway, she said to me, Helen, how did it feel wearing a burqa on the streets of, you know, Werry Beach? And, and I thought, my God, psychologically, that's like a manifestation of that entire psychology because, you know, you're, sitting, you're in one house and you're living in hell and it's invisible. You're invisible. And next door, it's mum and pup and the kids going camping and it's all great, you know. But mm. you're in this cocoon and as a child, your brain isn't, you know, you can't, you don't know how to interpret that. So a childhood post-traumatic stress disorder is a big thing. And I think, I think, you know, at one stage I was teaching in the jails and that's when a whole, that was great therapy. It's like mm-hmm. if you're a teacher and you've got childhood post-traumatic stress disorder, go into the jails because you can see in there that, um, you know, and I remember talking to the, the, the um, superintendent of the jail, the chief of the jails, and she was saying to me when I was in the women's prison, she was saying to me that 
85% of women in jails are there on drug-related charges and uh, come from uh, child abuse backgrounds. So, of course, it's self-medication. 85%. 85%. That's huge. Yeah. Um, I want to I want to bring the story back to you, Helen. You talked about your dad as a wandering star, so, something that would take him to New Zealand, and you have quite a few siblings in New Zealand as well. Uh, tell me about them. I've got, well, in my immediate family, I've got Ian and Marion, and they were our little family, and then way down the track because no one talked about things like that so I discovered I think I was about 19 that my father had had another family in New Zealand and that was Graham and Phil whom I adore Graham's like a a karate champion a world champion and Phil my darling Phil it's actually coming up to the anniversary where he unfortunately passed away he was in the navy and was very sadly um, killed there in an accident and um, then I've got Charmaine and Chad, which we didn't realize we had. And they are Maori. So I've got Maori sister and brother. I mean, how cool is that? You know, so mm. um, when we found out, we, we only found out, I think it was in 2000. And I rang my sister and brother immediately. And I said, Marion, we're jumping on a plane. We're going to go to New Zealand and meet these cool sister and brother, Charmaine and Chad. And we were just, you know, their mother, Lucy, who's this beautiful Maori princess, beautiful woman, they just treated us like family immediately. And we, uh, you know, and and it's just beautiful. And and they sung me onto the marae and I was inducted into all this amazing Maori culture and they took me to all these different locations and told me about the land and things and and how to be in in First Nations culture and and it was just it's just beautiful and so dad you know dad he passed away in 2021 which broke our hearts because even though he was a wandering star he brought seven of us kids into this world and we found each other and we are inseparable now and it's it's a beautiful thing so he gifted me with my beautiful sisters and brothers and I just feel so happy about that. That's really special. The next one you've chosen, Helen, is called Devil Gate Drive. Why did you choose this to play on the show today? Because Susie Quattro was my goddess. She was my icon. <laughs> I was so little and my little sister Marion and I used to do this wild hair flicking dance whenever it came on and and um, she, was, she was like a very early feminist, really, from, the, from that era. And she was out loud and was, you know, like Joan Jett, you know, I don't care about my bad reputation and Devil Gate Driver. I just thought, I, I really thought, you know, because it describes a, a town where children have to grow up a hell of a lot younger than, than should be. You know, at the age of five, you start to come alive down in Devil Gate Drive. And it kind of made me feel not so alone and made me feel um, I could survive because she had survived and I could be strong. I was allowed to be strong and that's an important thing because women weren't allowed to be strong. You had to be a girl. You had to be like a nice girl. <laughs> not a girl. <laughs> <laughs> it's Devil Gate Drive on FBI Radio 94.5 sung by Susie Quattro and chosen by my guest on Out of the Box, the lovely Helen Rose. So come alive, yeah, come alive. 
was Susie Quattro, Devilgate Drive, and you heard it right here on FBI Radio 94.5. You are listening to Out of the Box. I'm Mia Hull. I am joined by performance artist, lead singer of Soul Crime and co-producer of Giddo's Productions, the lovely Helen Rose. Helen, your life is quite, I guess I would describe it as international. You you know, make art everywhere around the world. But right now you are joining me from Wollongong. What brought you back to the gong? Oh, well, you know, it's not quite the gong. It's it's just outside of the borders of the gong, I think. But you know that scene from The Dressmaker where Kate Winslet gets off the bus and, and she lights a cigarette, sort of, and then she takes a puff, she breathes it in like, and then blows it out and goes, I'm back, you bastards. That's exactly... <laughs> Exactly like me. Uh, <laughs> uh, so I thought, yeah, I thought, no, Wollongong's been sleepy for far too long. They need yeah. me to come back and shake them back up. No, that's not true at all. That's not true at all. But you have been shaking things up in Wollongong. You're a performance artist and you've made art since you've been back. Tell me about that. Well, we did uh, all kinds of things. So we, uh, it was amazing um, doing the Surf Shack show. Because we, mm. where I'm actually down in Werry Beach, which is outside of the Gong, and um, we had this amazing um, surf shack next door, one of those old fibro houses that you know, a bit like a shotgun shack in the south in America, and um, where you can sort of look through the front door and see out the back door, and which was a common sort of house um, outside of Sydney and Wollongong in those days, in the old days, and all the surfies were living in there, and. We come back from Afghanistan and the, and we come to our house and next door there was this, this explosion of blonde hair and, and surfboards and wild party antics. You know, they were having these wild parties and stuff. And we just thought, my God, they're like angel squad. They're, you know, they were so opposite to Afghanistan. During the COVID lockdown, George came up with this idea and said, we've got to do a show in the shack next door because they're about to knock it down and build the house, the brand new house that's there now. So George contacted the owners, or I did, I contacted the owners, and um, we both spoke to them, and they, wonderful people, agreed to let us do a show in there. So George kind of purged this Augustus Tower suite of artworks that are just incredible. I mean, this was the era of Weinstein, Epstein, Trump, you know, the whole horror show unfolding and COVID mixed into the into it. And I just thought, well, how am I going to fit into this show? And I just thought it would be incredible to do this story called The Haunted Burqa that I'd been writing in Afghanistan for years and years. I keep diaries. I'm a diarist. And The Haunted Burqa was about the, the weird sort of mystical experiences that occur um, in Afghanistan because it's such an ancient place and magic is still alive there. That's why I started writing it, because there were so many strange experiences that occurred there. But I, I thought, I want to bring the burqa here to Werry Beach during this time, because it's a place where everyone comes to have recreation. It's, you know, it's a, quite a wealthy area. It's a place where, I mean, I guess some uh, of the young men here would fight in Afghanistan and come back. And so I thought... The burqa represented to me the unseen, the, the, the faceless in all of these war zones that George has been to, 
the war zones that I've been to with him, the the, the juvenile justice, the the what's happening to the women in our society, uh, the women in the West, you know, with Epstein and Weinstein, this kind of this kind of, it's about the faceless um, rising up and saying no more. And there's been, you know, the Me Too campaign was incredible. I remember when Weinstein was on TV and being convicted. I could hardly believe it. And I just said to George, a new day has dawned. And a new day has dawned. So the Haunted Burka performance was about that. And it was quite, it was taken as very full on. Of course, there was, you know, a bit of uproar because it was like, why is that person wearing a burka? And the great thing about performance art is that you really put your neck on the line and that's the gold of performance art. And I got to meet one of my great other great goddesses, which was Carolee Schneeman, who did those, you know, she won the Golden Lion Award at Venice uh, in the year before she very sadly passed away. And she always said to me, there's always got to be the element where the public is involved and no one knows what's going to happen. And that is the gold of performance art. So I didn't even know I was going to do it. I just, I was in my burker. I mean, this one segment of it, I, I wasn't sure how it was going to work out. Uh, but the women in Afghanistan, you see them under their burkas with their hands out begging in the middle of the street, on the freeways, on the highways. And, and sometimes you see them begging with a child. So I thought, I'm going to do that on Werry Beach and see what happens, you know, in this burka performance. That was also part of it. I just, I wanted to haunt the surf shack. That's what I wanted to do. Um, so, you know, it, just that interaction with the public, you know, some people just like, get off the road, you effing Muslim, see, you know, you're, you know, get off. And other people were like beeping the horn or people would try and swerve and run over me and things like that. Um, but other people would stop, one nice guy stopped and said, like, are you okay? So it was like, it was that moment, that interaction with the public, that kind of that is the gold of performance art because that's that shows the audience, that shows the public who we really are in some ways. What, what does the future hold for you, Helen? The future is open like a marvellous freeway to eternity. I don't know. It's um, It holds so many things. I'm very excited that I learned, really focused on classical singing, uh, uh, and singing arias and, and opera works that I'm totally distorting and messing up with uh, the world-famous coloratura soprano, Mary Jean O'Doherty. Her and I have the same teacher, the, the diva, Arax Mansourian, the Armenian diva. We secretly call her the wolf mother, by the way. She, because when she... <laughs> <laughs> this is a secret, don't tell anyone, okay? Only you, FBI, okay. you listeners when she arrived from Armenia she had a wolf skin fur coat and and Mary Jean and I like can you know when you go over to her place to her lesson can you go in and just steal that coat out of her closet but she's apparently she said um you know that people said to her um you you can't wear that coat in Australia she's like what do you mean I can't wear wolf skin coat in Australia it look beautiful so I said, and I said, <laughs> Arax, it is beautiful. It is beautiful. And so, so is she. So that, so soul crime is a big thing for the future. It was incredible recording in Nashville. Um, I'm now uh, working for the House of Bryant in Nashville on their songs. I'm doing interpretations of those, which is so much fun. I worked with Jim Magini doing a Christmas carol. How odd, but that was exciting. Mm. 
so yeah, you know, the, and then uh, I'm very excited about how my film version of Haunted Burger is going. My work with Fred Gianelli from Psychic TV, uh, how that mm. is going. That is popping up in different international film festivals. I'm very excited about the film that I made uh, in Peshawar with my uh, Yellow House in Exile actors called The Dictators, which is a comedy drama. Um, uh, so, uh, no bad guys, we're editing it now, which is like an extension of White Light, uh, but it's very character based because I'm a drama actor person, George is a documentary person, <laughs> so our worlds are melding in this very wonderful way. Uh, so yeah, so that's how I feel. I just feel so excited about everything. Oh my goodness, so much coming up for you, Helen. I better not keep you for too long. But thank you so much for joining me today on Out of the Box. It's been a great privilege getting to learn about you. Thank you, Mia. It's been a real honour speaking with you. And it's an honour to talk to the younger generations out there. I remember (laughs) when FBI started up and we had a few FBI gigs down at my HRSL. And it's beautiful to see you guys evolve and grow up to be stronger and stronger Um, i'm excited to keep seeing that thank you um the song that you wanted to close out this interview with is called the stroll why did you pick this one the stroll was an extraordinary moment in my life when i moved into south side of chicago known as chirac and i was supposed to be really scared and it was supposed to be really dangerous i just found myself surrounded by beautiful uh african-american people who uh the segregation was so uh intense that i was the only white person i saw in 18 months there and while i was there i started to discover that you know i'd heard about all the amazing music that had came out of chicago and you know basically during what they call the great migration i call it the great escape from the south in memphis they everybody escaped to chicago and, of course, the, the music scene just exploded. And, you know, Cab Calloway and, and uh, you know, all these amazing musicians from the 20s. One guy said you could just hold a trumpet up in the air at night and it would play itself. And that was describing a place known as the Stroll. So everyone would, you know, you can imagine uh, 20s, 40s uh, people... Um, arriving from the south going out totally dressed up and strolling down the stroll and people like you know you could hear people like Willie Dixon playing and Muddy Waters and Howlin' Wolf and John Lee Hooker and Hound Dog Taylor and Mahalia Jackson was there Nat King Cole uh, you know all of those people were there and I realized that where were they they were all on segregated south side Chicago so mm-hmm. it was kind of it was a, a, a disturbing realization. And then I had one morning, I was about to go in and record this song with some of the greatest jazz musicians of Chicago and like William Kirk and Chris Green and Will Baggett. And uh, I'm forgetting the other names, but you can remember them for me. <laughs> but um, <laughs> I, You know, just extraordinary. And I was really nervous and it was really hot and there was just I just was sitting there and I got this I do have these mystical moments where I just I could hear the spirits of all of those people that those amazing musicians who were still crying out for justice I could hear this the strange 
African gods that were there in this odd land. I could hear that, you know, the South Side of Chicago is all on Indian land, like tribal Indian uh, indigenous land. And so, and I just, and I, and I could just f- had this bizarre epiphany. And I swear that Cab Calloway came and sat down beside me in my room with my nervousness and said to me, I'm going to tell you about Swing Cabaret. And I thought, that's how I'm going to do this song, Swing Cabaret. And I went into Sound Mind Records and there are all those incredible musicians right there ready to play. And we did this on the second take. So I'm very proud of this song. And it describes my time there in the south side of Chicago. A huge introduction. This song is called The Stroll. It's a cut from the White Light soundtrack chosen by today's guest on Out of the Box, performance artist and lead singer of soul crime, Helen Rose. If you did want to listen back to this episode or find any of the things that Helen and I have spoken about or find the full track list from today, all of that will be up on the program's page on fbiradio.com. You can also listen back to this episode via the podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. I want to give a Huge shout out to producer Tash for researching this episode and do stay tuned. Lunch up next, FBI. (laughs) 